Hello and welcome to this episode of Special Advising No Parent Left Behind, a show aimed at parents and caregivers of children along the spectrum of disabilities, but welcome siblings, teachers, healthcare professionals, and anyone interested in learning about topics from the world of exceptional needs, educational services, health and wellness, fitness, nutrition for you and your child, and more. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Mark Ingrassia, and I have 34 years of experience as a classroom teacher, parent coach, and advocate. I hope this podcast can inspire you to face your days more confidently, stirring a greater sense of self-love, mindfulness, an outpouring of goodness and positive role modeling for your children, while remembering to attend to the areas of your own mental, physical, and if you're inclined, spiritual health, enabling you to be all you hope to be for them. Today I'll be speaking about dealing with trauma as a caregiver, sharing some stories from my teaching days, and touching upon trauma-informed care. Parents, guardians, teachers, and other healthcare professionals have to deal with children who have experienced traumatic events in their lives. How can you best approach guiding them through the fallout? After that, stay tuned for a tip of the cap, your exceptional needs parenting tip, followed by your good news community share. So let's throw our arms around one another and calmly move in for another win. When little people are overwhelmed by big emotions, it's our job to keep calm. L.R. Nost. Trauma-informed education isn't a set of strategies. It is ultimately an exercise in empathy, patience, and flexibility. Educator Alex Shevin. Trauma-informed education is a journey, not a checklist. There's no magical program that's going to fix kids because we are not fixing kids. We're supporting kids in being successful. Matthew Portel. According to understood.org, trauma-informed teaching considers how trauma impacts learning and behavior. Trauma can slow down or completely stop our ability to learn. Kids experiencing trauma are more likely to fall behind in class or get in trouble for behavior issues. Students who have experienced trauma are more likely to be referred to special education. Trauma might sometimes be misidentified as ADHD since the symptoms have a lot of overlap. Hyperactivity, restlessness, disorganization, and trouble focusing can be signs of either trauma or ADHD. Referring students for an evaluation can help identify the underlying issue, but it's important to find an evaluator who has experience with ADHD and trauma if both are a potential concern. I'm going to speak here about trauma using first-hand experience and refer to trauma-informed teaching as an evidence-based approach to clearing a path through the fallout. But my main goal here is to give some insight to parents and teachers into managing life for your young one following a traumatic event. I'm not an expert on trauma-informed care in the sense that I've not studied it or formally employed it. However, I've been through some challenging events with my students in the past and feel, along with my basic compassionate nature and personal approach to coping with trauma, well-equipped to address this area. And within my dealings, it turns out that I was incorporating TIC. The Center for Evidence-Based Practice defines trauma-informed care as a strengths-based service delivery approach that is grounded in an understanding of and responsiveness to the impact of trauma. That emphasizes physical, psychological, 
and emotional safety for both providers and survivors. That creates opportunities for survivors to rebuild a sense of control and empowerment. They utilize six core principles, safety, trustworthiness and transparency, peer support, collaboration and mutuality, empowerment, voice and choice, cultural, historical, and gender issues. For more information on these and beginning a trauma-informed organization or developing TIC in your school or institution, visit their page, which I will upload to the resource page of my website. It's human nature to react differently to the same stimuli. And where some people might possess any range of mild to moderate reactions to something they have experienced or witnessed personally, others can be traumatized and sent spiraling. There's no one way we can expect people to react to loss, neglect, abuse, etc. As a result, I don't believe there is one approach to be taken for each individual. However, there are things that cross all experiences when it comes to how others react to a person who are traumatized by an experience. They are compassion, sympathy, understanding, or being open to understanding, and allowing one to recover at their own pace along their journey, step by step, day by day, ticking their own clock. I've experienced personal trauma, and the one distinction I observed with people around me is that there are those who can stay the long course and those who need to bail early on. There are smatterings of those, of course, that fall somewhere along the spectrum as well. Some who could handle my deep-seated worries and repeated statements or compulsions, not complaints, but rather concerns or uncertainties, and some who couldn't take the heat and felt enough was enough. Perhaps those people were too overwhelmed by the unexpectedness of my traumatic fallout and didn't have the tools or patience to cope, or they were triggered themselves and had to walk away, metaphorically throwing up their hands and saying, when are you going to get over this? Or can't you just move on? or something as uncomfortable to hear as that. Being traumatized leaves you feeling desperate at times, alone, lost, and without either the personal strength and drive to push through the pain on your own, or without having a support system to help you get there, it could be a very scary place. It will impact everything in your life, everything you've known to be casually occurring, everyday normalcy as you've known it. Your focus narrows, and you can become one-tracked in your thinking and manner of handling your movements throughout your day. That was me as an adult. So imagine what it could be like for a child. Imagine their inability to focus on tasks in the academic arena and at home. They are stunted by their trauma and progress can become slow or stagnant. Allow me to share a few trauma-informed experiences that I faced as a teacher. And remember, yes, there are strategies you can learn and This is why I'm doing this podcast, because most of us are unprepared. And when something terrible happens, we can feel lost and ill-equipped. Yet, as parents and guardians, we have to step up and be that rock for our kids. So along with some proven strategies to guide you, tuning into your compassion, empathy, and patience are the three greatest additional tools you'll need. Back in the late 90s, I had a class filled with children across a spectrum of learning, emotional and physical disabilities, and one heavenly-natured little one with a serious health diagnosis. It was a challenging yet incredibly rewarding year, ranging in degrees of upheaval at times, of 
violent outbursts to miraculous growth and development cognitively and pragmatically. This was a fragile class with tremendous ebbs and flows, heartbreaking moments of disappointment, glorious revelations of overcoming individual barriers, and one tragically devastating moment in time that would change all of our lives moving forward. My little one who had been so ill for much of her life and who had made such strides this year was suddenly absent for a week prior to a spring holiday. This happens, and of course, the concern was a bit higher in her regard, but as is typical of human nature, I, I believe, until you hear differently, you carry on as normal. Upon my arrival on the first day back to school, I was summoned into the office of my supervisor, who was on the phone and appearing quite sullen. He hung up and informed me that my dear little one had passed away. Now, as an aside, our school had been hit with a cluster of tragic deaths among staff members and one beautiful five-year-old in the recent months, and this additionally included my supervisor's young son. I can't recall if this was before or after his death. So we all felt the fatigue of one loss upon another, but this stunning news left me numb. I had to inform my staff of assistance, and then the children who were very young and developmentally not quite to the level of me knowing how the news might impact them. But before the students arrived for the day and shortly after informing my staff, I received word that there had been a mistake in communication from the hospital and that, in fact, my little one was still alive on life support. This sent my head spinning. What do you do? Shock and sadness turned to hope, and now what? I ended up visiting the hospital, seeing her, and being asked to join the family in speaking with the doctor to discuss life support decisions. It was heavy, and I was both uncertain of my place and honored to be included. The decision after hearing the diagnosis was made by the family to take her off of life support. She died that evening at 6.30. I received the news as I sat on my porch at home, staring up at a rainbow. I know it sounds made up, but it's as true as the sound of my voice. I hadn't experienced the death of a child in such an intimate way since I was in elementary school when two brothers who attended with me were killed in a basement fire caused by a gas leak. Being so young myself and hearing about this just felt viscerally wrong in every way and impossible on its face. I recall imagining if that had happened or could happen in my basement, and how could I escape? Could I fit through the small windows? Would I have time? Did they have windows? Were they able to try and escape? What trapped them? Was there such a force from a blast that they died instantly? I didn't know yet, and I had so many questions, and, and the one thing I remember the strongest was that no one asked me how I felt. No school team came to counsel, not like today when death is a common occurrence in school. So when my little one was gone, I felt a strong responsibility to acknowledge what my students might be feeling and find a way to get them to express it. They were so young, 9, 10, 11 years old, just like I was. But they may not have had the capacity to understand or know how to ask questions or behave or mourn. As a school, we had been in such an extended period of mourning that some people simply checked out. That's when I was truly struck by the fact that everyone is different and we can't expect everyone to react and mourn the same. 
Some people become too traumatized or exhausted and the losses stop registering. And I realize that I can't judge that for another. And that's not easy to do. I sought help from the school's social worker and psychologist who were very supportive and gave me the resources I would need to read to the children on the subject of death and give them creative opportunities to explore their loss. On top of this, I had assistants who worked closely with the kids and helping them and supporting them also became part of my job and in order that the classroom continue to function despite the malfunctioning of all of our hearts. I had another student in later years who was frail and malnourished. He came from a dysfunctional and neglectful home. He was a terrified little person who just wanted to please everyone. He struggled academically and was easily emotional while displaying occasional negative behaviors. He was lost and just wanted to be loved. His home life trauma impacted everything he thought and did. And despite the CPS investigations, nothing really changed all that much for a long time in the home. We changed in school and tried our best to meet his emotional and nutritional needs as well as clothing him properly. Academically, things needed to be adjusted to meet his increasing learning disabilities and an entirely different approach to teaching him needed to be installed. Being sensitive while not becoming emotionally distraught myself over the lack of findings from investigators, as little to no improvements at home were being made was challenging. Again, my focus would have to be on what I could do to support my student while he was in my care. When our bodies sense a threat, energy rushes towards brain regions specialized in averting danger. This is uh, essential for keeping us alive. But it also means that energy shifts away from the brain regions that help us learn. When students are experiencing trauma, they might be more distracted and take longer to complete tasks. They might be more irritable or jumpy. This according to understood.org. Trauma-informed teaching starts with an understanding of how trauma can impact learning and behavior. With this approach, educators think about what student behavior may be telling them, and they reflect on their teaching practices to find ways to better support students who may be experiencing trauma. The Trauma-Informed Care Implementation Resource Center says, Trauma-informed care shifts the focus from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. A trauma-informed approach to care acknowledges that healthcare organizations and care teams need to have a complete picture of a patient's life situation, past and present, in order to provide effective healthcare services with a healing orientation. Adopting trauma-informed practices can potentially improve patient engagement, treatment adherence, and health outcomes, as well as provider and staff wellness. Trauma-informed teaching has seven strategies. One, expect unexpected responses. Two, employ thoughtful interactions. Three, be specific about relationship building. Four, promote predictability and consistency. Five, teach strategies to change the channel. Six, give supportive feedback to reduce negative thinking. And seven, create islands of competence. I'll post the article from ASCD.org that goes further into these strategies. For now, the points I would assert from what I know of trauma-informed strategies are those that come down to building trust with your student or child, giving them room to express, modeling calm for them, and creating predictable environments and predictable routines that allow them to come back to themselves in a safe place at the time that is right for them. 
And always remember that these times can impact you too. So be sure to take care of yourself and seek mental support when needed. It takes strength and love to be there for children facing trauma. Your guidance is seminal to their recovery. If you're following your heart as you employ this guidance, innate and scientific, you will affect positive change. It's time now for a tip of the cap, your exceptional needs parenting tip. Today's tip comes from understood.org. Understand consequences. Consequences are not punishments, although they may feel that way at times. They're a good way for your child to learn that there are natural outcomes in life. This knowledge can help kids structure and organize their behavior. In most instances, a consequence should simply involve withholding an agreed-upon reward. Here's an example. You agreed that your child could video chat with a friend after practicing the piano for 20 minutes. No piano practicing means no chat. Today's Good News Community Share comes from PositiveParentingNews.org. Calm nurses save the day for anxious kids. This is from Hartford, Connecticut, Ivanhoe Newswire. It's the phone call that parents hate to get. The school nurse is on the line because your kid is in her office again. But could those frequent headaches and stomach aches be caused not by the latest bug that's going around, but by anxiety? Ivanhoe has more on a program that empowers school nurses to take an active role in identifying and relieving student stress. With hundreds of elementary school students together in the hallways and on the playground, nobody's busier than the school nurse. Headaches, low-grade fever, stomach aches, asthma injuries, listed school nurse Pat DiStefano. They used to be ice packs and band-aids, right? Well, not anymore, says Mary Emerling, school health supervisor, Middletown Schools. That's because, among other things, 7% of all school-age kids are diagnosed with anxiety. Golda Ginsberg, Ph.D., a psychologist at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine, studies child anxiety disorders. She and her colleagues evaluated an intervention for anxious students ages 5 to 12, training school nurses to use cognitive behavioral therapy in a program called CALM. The C stands for Calm Down. They teach the student relaxation skills to calm the physiological symptoms, the racing heart, the nausea, the headaches, explained Ginsburg. A, for actions that reduce anxiety. Instead of saying, everyone's going to laugh, laugh at me. I know I'm going to fail the test for sure. I'm going to get sick and die. The nurses will carefully help the student evaluate how realistic is that thought, continued Ginsburg. L stands for listen to the scary thoughts and change them to coping thoughts and manage future problems. To study CALM, nurses delivered the program to students with anxiety in six 20- to 30-minute sessions. Researchers found even three months after the intervention ended, almost 60% of the students in CALM reported lower anxiety and fewer physical symptoms of stress. The same percentage of kids who have lower stress after longer sessions with mental health professionals. We're giving them coping skills to take with them, Emmerling stated. Skills that will help students in the classroom and beyond.
I want to thank you again for listening to this episode, and I hope you'll join me each week to hear about topics close to your heart and welcome fresh and informative insights into areas that are new to you. All music heard on today's show comes from Jason Shaw at audionautics.com. Remember to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Special Ed Rising and on my website, specialedrising.com. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. You can contact me directly with questions, comments, or if you're interested in parent coaching, through my email, specialedrising at gmail.com, or my contact pages on Facebook or my website. If you would like to share some of your success stories with the audience, please send them to my email. Let's show the world what's possible. Also, let me know if there's anything you'd like to learn more about. And until next time, peace and keep rising.